You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The thing about being catapulted into a whole new life, or at least shoved up so hard against someone else's life that you might as well have your face pressed against their window, is that it forces you to rethink your idea of who you are, or how you might seem to other people. To my parents, I had, in four short weeks, become just a few degrees more interesting. I was now the conduit to a different world. My mother, in particular, asked me daily questions about Granter House and its domestic habits in the manner of a zoologist forensically examining some strange new creature and its habitat. Does Mrs. Trainer use linen napkins at every meal? she would ask, or do you think they vacuum every day like we do? Or what do they do with their potatoes? She sent me off in the mornings with strict instructions to find out what brand of loo roll they used or whether the sheets were a polycotton mix. It was a source of great disappointment to her that most of the time I couldn't actually remember. My mother was secretly convinced that posh people lived like pigs, ever since I had told her, at age six, of a well-spoken school friend whose mother wouldn't let us play in their front room because we'd disturbed the dust. Jojo Moyes is the author of the novel The Last Letter from Your Lover. Her new novel is Me Before You. Thank you for joining me, Jojo. Thank you for having me. In any novel that's set in modern-day England, You're going to have some interesting examinations of class, and you certainly have that in this novel. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about your upbringing, your present circumstances, any changes that you might have experienced in your life that might have informed the writing of this novel. Well, I guess I do have a fairly mixed background in that my father was born to a very working-class family, and my mother was born to a solidly middle-class family. Her father was a naval commander. And so from an early age, I I guess I I witnessed both sides of of English life. You know, I had some step-grandparents at one point who had a cook, and, you know, they lived in a stately home in Ireland. And yet my other nana lived in a what we call an under a two up two down where the house is really really tiny and she had an outside loo, so I guess I just from a really early age had a, a knowledge of of a really wide strata of society. One of the things I think that makes this novel so charming and so wonderful is the first person voice of your narrator uh, Louisa Clark, and she's solid. Working class, is that? Yes. And I I think as I was reading this novel, I was thinking, you know, at first one tends to think that a first-person narrator is pretty easy to characterize in terms of characterization. But then as I thought about it, it's really tough. And I'd like you to talk about the challenges of creating a character in the first person where because you're trapped in that perspective, you can never show them from outside, and everybody else you see has to be seen from outside. Well, I I very rarely write in the first person for exactly that reason, because you tend to write yourself into a corner. You know, you can't explain what's going on in other parts of the world or other parts of your story even. But I thought because the subject matter of this book was potentially quite alienating, I needed the reader to be carried along with Lou. I needed you to be standing in her shoes from the very beginning. And when she first meets Will, for example, her her charge, uh, a quadriplegic man, 
she's introduced to him pretty much via a lecture of all the meds that he needs to take and all the basic procedures that she will need to be in charge of. And it's terrifying. And I needed the reader to feel as out of their depth as she did so that they were carried along, you know, trying to work out what on earth was going on as she was. That's so interesting because one of the things that I really liked about the book was to see her growth from within. And we experience that at first she seems fairly simple and straightforward, but as the book goes on and she experiences more and more of the world, she becomes more complicated. She doesn't realize this necessarily so much as we as readers do, and that's really pleasurable. And could you talk about creating that kind of character arc for the book? Did you know they were going to go through that arc? Did you have markers? Did you have spreadsheets? Um, Yeah, I'm one of these kind of completely mad plotters. I have a a wall of my kitchen that I have painted with whiteboard paint, and I basically plot on there. It's meant to be mine, but actually it's mostly used by my kids to tell me that I owe them pocket money or to say each other stinks. But I, I, I did have an arc in mind, and... I find that if you don't plot these things quite carefully, you can't put in twists. And, and, you know, you will know, having read the book, that there are a few surprises in there. And what I found over the process of writing, this was my ninth book, is that if you don't pace your book carefully, if you don't work out where the twists are, if you have too many climactic moments that happen at once, they don't make one big explosion, they actually negate each other. And so um, all these things are necessary before you get going. But I have to say, with Will and Lou unusually for me both those characters emerged fully formed for me and this really rarely happens and it made the process of writing so much easier because all I actually had to do was put the two of them in various situations and I knew exactly how they would react to the situations and exactly how they would react to each other and that made writing it a joy in the way that a lot of my other books have not been a joy to write frankly. Well it's really a joy to read and to see these people meet and get together. Uh, Let's talk about Will and one of the things I think that uh, makes this book powerful and interesting and engrossing is the the prologue. This is when you uh, open up this book and I recommend readers open up this book to skip everything they ever heard. Hopefully you're listening about to this after you've read the book. (laughs) If you're listening before we'll try to keep the spoilers to a minimum. But when we read this opening, it's really powerful. And I, I'd like you to talk about architecting that scene and crafting it in prose. Okay, well, we, can I say a little bit about what the scene involves? Sure. Okay, well, we open the book with Will. It's, it's actually the only part of the book that we see through Will's eyes. And there is a reason for that, which I'll explain later. But it opens and you what the reader sees is is a man who is pretty much a master of the universe. You know, he is a city high flyer. He wakes up with the gorgeous girl in his bed. They're discussing what luxury holiday to take. He picks up his phone and there's a a series of high-flying deal phone calls that he needs to catch up on. He goes downstairs. He's going to ride a a motorbike to work, but the weather is filthy. And after a discussion with the guy who runs his his car parking area downstairs, he decides he's not not stupid. You know, he's a man who likes adventure, but he's not going to take a risk on a rainy day. So he decides to catch a taxi. And it is in the process of catching the taxi on this filthy raining morning that he gets hit by a bike. And that's the catastrophic accident that leads his life irrevocably changed. Now, uh, when you crafted this, uh, 
talk about just um, creating the pros and did you like go to a place where something like this could have happened because it, it's really vivid I think and, and it's important to have that kind of striking um, a beginning to really immerse us in this situation. Well, it's funny you say that because um, for years I, I, I am one of those writers who reads their Amazon reviews and a common thread that ran through them was that I, my books took too long to get going. And so I, I listened to that. I mean, there's a lot of Amazon reviews I don't pay a lot of attention to, but I figured that if lots of people are saying the same thing, then you should listen. And so this book immerses you in the action from the first moment. Um, and, and that was pretty much why. But when you say it was vivid, that's very interesting for me because I have to see a scene cin cinematically before I can write it. And if I don't see it cinematically, it doesn't jump off the page for me. And I could see, I didn't go to anywhere where that might happen, but I knew exactly the kind of environment that he lived in and the downstairs car park and the rainy London street, you know, at seven o'clock in the morning. It was all there in my head. Now, Will's name itself tells us something about him. He's a, a force of nature. But when we first meet him, he has been deprived of all means of exerting that force. And I'd like you to talk about creating that kind of contrast in this character, um, because he's such an important character to the book, but we really don't get to see him very much, at least at first. And that must have been a challenge for you to hold back like that. Yeah, I thought it was, I mean, I felt that it, a, it was important for the reader to see Will in his old life briefly before the book really kicked off. But yeah, I thought because we needed to see the situation through Lou's eyes through pretty much three quarters of the book, um, it was more important for the reader to kind of see what her life involved and see what led her to take the decision to to look after this quadriplegic man. Um, because it's a job that not a lot of people would agree to do it. It's a daunting prospect. As a writer, was this something you were familiar with? Or talk a little bit about doing the research for this book or, or putting yourself so that, you know, there's a quadriplegic community out there who's going to be reading this book mm. and they're going to be alert for anything that is not right. I have to say one of the things that's been really gratifying is the number of messages I've had from people saying, thank you for reflecting my life. There's a number of things that factored into the research of this book. One was, when I was writing it, I had two relatives who required 24-hour care just to stay alive. So the issue of how they lived and their quality of life was very high in my mind. Uh, a lot of the, the scenes come from real-life experience. For example, the scene where Lou is trying to make Will eat some carrot and she's mashing it up like he's a baby and trying to hide it in his meal, I did that. I did that, and my dad was looking at me because I was trying to feed my bedbound relative. My dad looked at me and said, how is a teaspoon of carrot really going to change her life? And it made me laugh because I just realized it's that, that desperate desire, no matter how impotent, to improve somebody's life, you know, whether it's a misguided teaspoon of carrot or whatever. I also have a, a male friend who's been in a wheelchair for pretty much 20 years, and one of the things that I always noticed when we went out in a group was we had to factor in whether, for example, the restroom was on the same level as the rest of the bar because a real downer for his evening was having to be carried by two of his male friends down to the restroom. You know, it's just... it's. It takes the edge off his day. So a lot of that stuff about attitudes comes from my own experiences. But the research itself comes from um, mostly the internet. 
Um, there are lots of quadriplegic communities online. A lot of the stories about what you can and can't do in a chair come from them. Um, also, a lot of quadriplegics put their lives on YouTube. So the correct way to be lifted out of bed in the morning, the correct way to ride a horse you know, in a frame, the holidays, the adventure holidays, quadriplegics can go on. All that stuff came from um, experiences that they'd put on, on camera and uploaded themselves, which was an invaluable resource. I mean, how the internet has changed writing in 10 years, I can't tell you, because you don't need to go anywhere. Well, it seems so authentic and so um, there for us. Now, one of the things I think that makes this book so beautiful and readable is your pacing and the pacing of the intimacy. And what interests me about that is that this is a book where a lot of the plotting is character revelation. I, there's not necessarily, obviously, there's not a lot of action. Mm -hmm. and, and so I'd like you to talk about creating this, the the emotional pacing of this book that makes it really, it's a compelling page turner. You, once you, you sit down and read this, you do not want to put it down till the end. Well, you know, the more books I write, the more I realize it is all about character. Everything comes back to character. And I knew that they were so different that any journey they began together would have to almost be a surprise to the two of them. And it's like sometimes, you know, when, I don't know if you've worked in an office, but you see two co-workers skirting around each other and they might not even realize how much they like each other, but everybody else can see it. I love that thing. And, and that's why sometimes I switched into the third person because sometimes it's more powerful to see it through somebody else's eyes. But, you know, I think both of them are slightly in denial about what is happening, partly because Lou is in a, another situation and Will is in a situation that he finds intolerable. And... One of the things people have said to me is, why did Will not say outright, I love you, to her? And I feel like it would not have been true to his character because he is a man who, he's not mushy, he's not romantic, but he is an incredibly, he's just a man who's full of grace underneath. It just takes various situations for it to come out. And what I wanted was not for them to have some revelation through conversation. I think the moment that you really see what an amazing character he is is the scene where she takes him back to her parents' house for her birthday dinner, and they live in this cramped, kind of slightly shabby little house. It's it's a house that's kind of evidently in a poor area. And he is so charming and so kind and puts his par her parents so much at ease that we see as a reader a totally different side of him. And as you say, you know, I think sometimes it's more powerful if it doesn't come, if it's not spelled out, basically, if you just see it through his conversation and his niceness. Well, I think that uh, one of the things, too, that's really interesting about this book for me is the importance of money in it. I mean, everybody's financial circumstances play a big part in the plot and the way these characters feel about money and how much money they have, in particular Lou's family, they're in a, a fair amount of distress and mm. it's important. Uh, so talk about how you orchestrated the economic concerns with the emotional concerns because they play off of one another very well. Well, I wanted it to be realistic, you know, and, and for the last few years, most families I know have been concerned either at their level of debt or, 
you know, nearly everyone I know is concerned to a greater or lesser degree to, to money, you know, with money. It's not necessarily acquisitiveness. It's just about survival. And in England, definitely there is a, a, a growing divide between the haves and the have-nots. And, uh, I'm, you know, the, the expression on your face tells me it's true here too. And I don't think you can write a story set in the modern day without at least reflecting some of that. You know, nobody's lives exists outside this bubble. And I also thought it was necessary to be frank about the financial situation in terms of their relationship. In fact, this whole book, often when I write, uh, a book comes from one scene, and it might not be an early scene. And in, in this case, I saw there's a scene at a wedding where Lou makes it it's his ex-girlfriend's wedding and Lou makes him go out on the dance floor much to the chagrin of many of the guests who are frankly appalled that there's a, a guy in a wheelchair going round and round in circles with a woman hanging on his lap you know and I heard this conversation in my head of her you know draped all over him they're quite they're a little bit drunk there it's the scene where they really are quite open about how they feel about each other. And she bas he basically says, you know, you would never have let me this close if I hadn't been quadriplegic. And she says, you would have never looked at me had you not been quadriplegic. And he says, of course I would, don't be ridiculous. And she says, no, because I would have been one of the invisibles. I would have been the girl serving you at the bar and you would have been looking at the leggy blondes with the expense accounts, you know, further over there. And he has to admit that it's true. Um, and the way they were so direct and honest with each other in that little conversation that just popped into my head informed the way they reacted to each other in the rest of the book. And, you know, she is the only person who is direct with him because everybody else has been tiptoeing around him because they're terrified of what's happened to him and no one knows how to react and it's all, you know, so uncomfortable. And she just basically comes along and says, nah, you don't talk to me like that. Um, and, and that I found quite charming. It's, that's interesting. It, it seems like you must have worked backward and forward from that scene. Yes, that's exactly it. But that's what I mean about how I knew the characters before I even started. Mm -hmm. um, I had their tone, which is, again, it's just really rare. And, you know, I've had books. I've written um, a book since. And it, it, it was an effort to try and replicate anything like that intimacy of tone between the two of them. I, I don't know why it happened that time. One of the things that I think makes this book so engaging is your sense of dynamics in every scene, interpersonal dynamics in, in every scene and in every situation. So let's first talk a little bit about the dynamics of her family, okay. which seem really very realistic and raw. Uh, she has an older sister and, who has a child, and they have grandpa lives at home. And So tell us a little bit about creating uh, her family, the Clark family. Okay, um, well, I like to reflect what I see as real life again, which is that families tend to be messy. Uh, you know, my own family is messy. We're not a kind of Walton-esque collection. It doesn't mean we don't love each other, but, you know, I have stepsisters and stepbrothers. I have a grandmother that I help look after. I have a, a relative who's still in a care home. Uh, and I just, again, wanted to reflect the the dynamics of real life i'm fascinated by sisters because i didn't have one i only you know i had stepsisters when i was in my late teens and early 20s and i was fascinated by the way that one minute they could be at each other's throats and the next minute completely defending each other and telling everybody else to go away 
Um, and so I, I like that kind of mercurial nature of, of sibling relationships, and I was trying to reflect that. But also, I don't know, we all know fathers like that who... He has a joke for every occasion. It might not be a good one, but it's it's a joke, and he doesn't always say the right thing, but he is ultimately an incredibly loving father. The grandfather who's had a stroke and, and has to stay home, and the, the mother who basically does everything and looks after everybody. But in this case, she's not a martyr. She really that That's what she feels is her job. She really loves looking after her family. And... You know, they have arguments. There, There's too many of them in a small space. So one of the running themes of the book is the arguments over who gets what bedroom. But again, it, it's as to me, it's what reflects real life as I know it. I really like that uh, sense of that the way the, the houses uh, played in, in, in terms of the plot and the way they uh, reflected the characters and the way the characters had to deal with the places they lived. Tell us a little bit about creating the relationship between sisters, these sisters, when you yourself didn't have any. That, that's, that must have been uh, both fun and a challenge. Well, you Was know... It, but like fantasy football, I guess? <laughs> I... I don't know. I, again, I just I, I saw and I heard them, and it was quite easy. I suppose I tried to lift a little. I, I have girlfriends who I've known since school. I'm 43 now, so I've known them kind of 25 years. And we have that, you know, relationship with each other, which encompasses great love and great loyalty, but also we can get irritated by each other and um, not agree with all the decisions each other makes um, and I think with siblings that's just amplified I think you know one of the filters is stripped out so they're just a little bit ruder to each other and in fact there was one scene where Lou is so mad at her sister that she thinks she's going to hit her and she's so not a hitting kind of a person but I just needed to reflect just how frustrated she was with the situation and yeah I suppose that that relationship enabled me to show other stuff about their lives as well. The money thing is interesting too because of the the way uh, Lou has to look for a job, and she has to go down to the job center, and a- as does her father. And so, I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, exploring these aspects of life, and then contrasting them with the way things are at Trainer Manor. Yeah, well, um, that those scenes were actually a lot of fun to write. I did a lot of research about what goes on at job centers, and it seems to me it's just one of those nightmarish things where the jobs that are put up are really really not necessarily jobs you would want to do so she gets offered a job in a chicken processing factory which is just hideous she gets offered a job selling electricity to old people where she's pretty much told to befuddle them into switching to more expensive plans so she quits that job she gets a job in a fast food store but gets told off for not sticking to the um, prescribed speech and at at Trainer Manor, if you like, none of these things exist for them because they are a wealthy family. They don't have to think about it. Will has made so much money from his deals that unusually for most people who suffer a catastrophic handicap, he doesn't have to worry about bearing the financial cost of his illness. He has enough money to be taken care of. And I don't think he would understand the job centre situation any more than Will would under, uh, than Lou would understand what it is to have a, a bank balance with six figures in it. But again, it was important to show the contrast between them. You give uh, Lou a boyfriend, and he's kind of undergone a transformation in their relationship. And this has kind of happened beforehand. But I really like this, how how this kind of uh, guy whose interests at first 
before the book begins are like watching beer, watching TV, and beer <laughs> in that order. <laughs> and then who's transformed into the marathon, man. Mm. And that, again, there's another like little subworld there that you create very well for us. Oh, thank you. I, I sort of believe it's as important to, to round off your secondary characters as it is your main characters. And Patrick was great fun to write. I mean, we have an expression in England, mammals, middle-aged men in lycra. I don't know if you have that here. And Patrick's a kind of younger version of that. But he's one of those guys who, as you say, liked to be, couldn't drive past a, a fuel station without getting a Mars bar, like lying around, and then suddenly discovered marathon running. And as with many of these people, just became a really boring obsessive. And I know a couple of men like this, and, and they can talk about nothing but body fat ratios and kind of wicking properties of lycra. And it's just, I think it becomes an all-consuming obsession. And I like the contrast between Patrick being so physically able, but frankly not able to see what was going on in front of him, and Will, who is plainly not physically able, and yet has all the self-awareness to realize what is going on. Your, your novel takes on a very difficult subject matter. It's fraught with the potential for becoming saccharine, but you deal with this very well. As a writer, did you find yourself having to go back and put in more grit, take out grit? I worried about it the whole time, actually. And in fact, me and my agent had a running joke that this might well be the book that finished off my career entirely because it's such a potentially controversial subject matter that if you do get it wrong, it would it would be awful. I mean, it really would be awful. Uh, and so I, until I finished it, I wasn't sure how it would be received. But the thing that I felt, two things I felt were really important was, one... You know, this is not a how-to manual. Uh, you know, this is this book really does not put one position forward and say this is what you should think. It, it's an examination of the effects of one man's potential decision on a wide group of people. Because when a catastrophic ac accident happens, it doesn't just happen to one person. It affects the whole family. But also, it's meant to be kind of joyful. I mean, anybody who's got somebody disabled in their family will know there's a lot of humor as well. It's not just, uh, I don't know, just because somebody's disabled doesn't mean we have to be terribly po-faced and worthy. I mean, my, my son was born profoundly deaf, my youngest son, and he has a cochlear implant. And when he was a toddler, uh, it's, it's magnetic. And when he was a toddler, if he behaved badly, his siblings would threaten to stick him to the fridge. Um, which, if you say that the wrong way, you know, people will be calling the social services. But he thought it was hilarious. His siblings thought it was hilarious. We thought it was hilarious. And um, I don't know. I just, it's like the emergency services. You ever speak to a cop or a, a person who works in an ambulance, they have so many funny stories. And I knew that because it was potentially such a bleak subject matter that there had to be a lot of joy in it as well. And I hope I got the balance right. I mean, from the, I've had the most overwhelming response to this book. I've received more emails and messages than I have for my other books all put together. And I would say 99.5% of them have been not just positive, but kind of extraordinary. So um, I'm hoping I got the balance right. As you are putting this together, tell us a little bit about your process of revision or writing. Do you like write a wave front and go from start on page one and finish on page 368? Or do you like whip through it and then 
comb out all the wrinkles out of the tangled... Uh... A bit of both, really. I mean, I, I do just start at page one, but more often than not, I will get to halfway through the book and I'll go back and completely rewrite the first scene. Sometimes it's just a matter of not facing the blank first chapter, you know, because it's daunting. It really is. Sometimes you just have to put the words down, even if they're flawed. And I'm one of these people who... Um, I try and get the emotional truth of a scene down first or the kind of general shape of it, and then I work and rework and rework. And in fact, I'm sure if there was some software which looked at how a book changes from start to finish, there would be almost no original words in it because I'm a compulsive reworker. I'm not even one of these people who can go back to their book the next day and move Mm -hmm. on. I have to go back and, and... you know, polish and polish and polish until I'm happy before I can move forward. This book, too, deals, as you say, with some really serious and dark issues. Uh, when we meet Will, as a result of his accident, one of his first things to do was to attempt suicide. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about the the quality of life issues and just uh, creating a character who's alive but doesn't necessarily want think that's a good mm. idea. Well, the book was partly inspired by a, a radio uh, news story that I heard, which was um, I was driving along with my kids and I heard a story about a young rugby player who had been left quadriplegic after an accident playing rugby who had persuaded his parents at the age of, I don't know, 23, 24, to take him to this assisted suicide facility, and they had taken him. And I was so shocked by this because as a parent or even, you know, just as a human being, I couldn't understand why you would facilitate that. I couldn't understand why you would take your child and, and in effect, give up on them. I couldn't understand how you wouldn't fight till your dying breath to, to make them want to stay alive. And being an ex-journalist, I started to read up about the story. And the more I read, the more I realized that much as we would like these issues to be black and white, that they often aren't. And in this young man's case, He had played rugby since the age of three. He didn't want anything else. He was just a physical person. He wasn't interested in books or reading or whatever. He had tried to end his own life on numerous occasions by hideous means, the only means being available to him, not being able to move. He had isolated himself from everybody. And I know for a fact from my own relatives that, you know, it's not just a matter of being stuck in the chair. That's what most people who don't understand assume that you're just a man who's stuck in a chair. It's not. It's a constant series of invasive procedures, often without dignity, often done by strangers, just to keep you alive on a daily basis. And I don't know, I, I would like to think that in my own case, I would, you know, be able to achieve some kind of higher grace and and want to stay. I'd like to be a Christopher Reeve rather than a, you know, a person who who did that but who knows and and I guess the the book is kind of an appeal not to judge but to just imagine yourself in somebody else's shoes and perhaps not be quick to judge because I think we all are rather quick to kind of you know say well this is just wrong or this is disgraceful and and actually sometimes people put in extreme positions work in ways that we will find inexplicable. One of the side effects of our current medical abilities are the abilities for the body to continue on after the mind is no longer even really exists and so this idea of trying to find a way to end your life before when essentially the 
the mental being that has mm-hmm. always been you has gone away. Is This is becoming more and more pertinent well, every day. Because this is exactly the issue we're, we're facing with our family member, which is, you know, it's my dad's sister. She was a very proud woman. She was a glamorous woman. She... She earned her own money. She had a great career. She drove a great car. You know, she was just a real, I don't know, she was an amazing woman. And shes she has multiple sclerosis, and she's at the end stage now. And every time Dad or I go to see her, we have a conversation afterwards because its it's unbearable seeing what she goes through. And there is no escape from it. There is no relief from it. There is nothing to be gained from it. There is no grace to be got from it. It is just suffering. And we both know in our hearts that had she had a choice earlier, I mean, none of us knew about this thing, I think she probably would have taken it. And that's not our decision to make. And it's not a decision you can make for somebody else, thank God. But at the same time, it is it is um, heartbreaking every single time we visit her for exactly that reason. And I think... Yeah, medical advances bring a whole new set of moral quandaries, which is at what point is it just wrong to keep perpetuating someone's life? Is is it always right that someone should just stay alive even when, as you say, that you know their spirit isn't even there anymore? This brings me to <clears throat> Dignitas in, uh-huh. in Switzerland. Tell us a little bit about finding that organization because it's a real thing. I looked it up too. Well, yeah, it is a real thing, and, and it, it wasn't something I knew much about until I'd heard this news story, but it is a legal facility in Switzerland where after a series of quite stringent procedures, so you would have to have uh, doctor's examinations, you would have to have psychological examination, you would have to have detailed medical procedures, uh, sorry, detailed medical records to show that your condition would not improve, you are allowed to end your life. And there, there has been a, a, a big news story in, in England. Well, actually, it's news story after news story as various people have taken that route and many other people in England. There was a man called Tony Nicholson very recently who went all the way up to the appeal court who was left unable to do anything for himself with a thing called locked-in syndrome. And he and his family were campaigning for the right to him for the right for him to die, but in his own home. He didn't want to go to Switzerland. He wanted to be with his family. He felt his life was intolerable kind of 10 years after his accident. And they, his family were really amazing because they, they didn't want to lose him, but they said the man we're losing is not the man that we had. You know, he's so unhappy. He's so much in pain. We just want him to do what he wants. And I guess... The issue that's interesting about Dignitas is it it can, whatever you may think of it, and I'm not saying everybody should think that it's the right thing, but what it does is it gives a choice to people who may not have choices anymore. Um, It's a very controversial subject, though. I recognize that. Well, I, I think that one of the things this book does is examine these issues in a manner you create characters who seem real to us from real and different strata of life. And by giving us uh, their perceptions, you give us an idea of where those decisions can come from. And, and, and I think that that's one of the great things about reading, that in terms of reading this as a reading experience, it's really rather powerful. And I don't 
know that any other form of art is going to enable us to like live these lives in the mm. manner that reading does. Thank you very much. I mean, it, I, you know, I, that's exactly what I tried to do. I just tried to look at the issue from different perspectives. For example, Lou's mother, who is a religious man who, and who has devoted a large part of her life to looking after Lou's grandfather after he suffered a stroke, who is a very mild-mannered character the whole way through the book. Towards the end of it, when she realizes that Lou might support Will's decision, is absolutely infuriated. I mean, she's she's furious with her and says, you know, would you do this to your grandfather? Would you know, this is a terrible, terrible thing you're doing, and and it creates a huge rift in their relationship. Will's mother doesn't want him to die. Uh, she's fighting for him to to change his mind, but at the same time she approaches it in a different way. Lou is so appalled when she thinks that he might want to do it that she quits her job before being persuaded to come back, and then she says, "I'm going to change his mind. I'm going to I'm going to give him reasons to live. I'm going to get him out of that house and show him a, a world that's different to the one that he you know he thinks it is." And so everybody in this book, I mean, his carer is is a, a neutral. In this, he he says, you know what? I might not agree with it, but I wouldn't want to live his life, and I understand his right to do it. And so, the books I quite enjoy. I mean, I think Jodie Pico is very good at this. You read one of her characters, and you think, oh yeah, I definitely agree with that. And then you read a character with an opposing view, you go, oh, actually, I agree with that too. You know, and one of the nicest things about the messages I've received are people saying, you've forced me to re-examine my own views on this issue. And you know, as I said, I'm I'm not saying any of the views expressed in it are necessarily right, but hopefully it just makes you look a little bit harder. Now, you create, You mentioned two characters who we haven't talked about yet, and I like both of them. Nathan, who's the caretaker, you have a great description of him. He's like an armored vehicle in human form. And yeah. I think that you have, you have a lot of fun with him. And as with all of the characters, I feel like you know him a lot better than you... You know a lot more about him than we see on the page, but we feel the kind of uh, that depth. Well, that's interesting you say that because um, occasionally when I lecture on creative writing, one of the things I encourage people to do is before you even start writing is to create uh, a file for every single major character, which would be where they grew up, what their parents are like, what house they grew up in, what food they like, what do they want out of life, what makes them angry. I have a thing called the kick the dog test, which is if your character was walking down a road and saw somebody kick a dog, how would they react? And it's a simple thing, but it tells you a surprising amount about who they really are inside. You know, would they intervene? Would they snatch the dog? Would they kick the dog? You know, it just I, I try and apply these little tests. And what I say to creative writing students is you will not use 95% of this character's history and information on your page but what it will do is inform your writing it will inform how they appear on the page and how they react to other people one of the characters whom i most enjoyed is camilla trainer oh okay uh, will's mother who is kind of a, a little bit like a, a judge judy <laughs> Yes, that's we exactly what she is here. <laughs> so talk about creating this character who in some ways is seems unlikable, yet she's really engaging to be around. 
Oh, that's so interesting you say that because a lot of people don't see beyond that and they just say, oh, what a chilly character, I don't like her because she is very contained. She's very icy and, and polite. And um, so you start off the book thinking, I don't like this woman. And Lou, in fact, at some point describes her as the kind of woman to who, who turns your fingers to thumbs when she's watching you. I think we've all met women like that. But there is one chapter that's told through her perspective and I think you realize that she is a particular kind of woman in an impossible situation. Her marriage is breaking down, but she can't devote any attention to it because her emotions are all geared towards saving her son. She and her son have always had a prickly relationship, so it's not even a kind of cozy mother-son thing. Um, She knows that he's always perhaps just not quite liked her as much as he could, but she, she still feels that passionate mother love towards him um and ultimately you realize as the book goes on that you know she she like Lou they all want the same thing it's just that she's one of those people who contains her emotions because you get that feeling that if she let one thing out the whole dam would bust open you know she would crack open um and I you know I think I don't know if it's an English thing I know a lot of people like that they just they have to keep the wall up because otherwise the whole thing's going to come tumbling down. There's a bit of a travel log in this book, and it's it's really enjoyable. I'm wondering if you as a writer forced yourself to go to some of these wonderful places that you take your characters and, and examine uh, firsthand where they were going to go. I did. And in fact, yeah, at one point the characters, at the cl- climactic point of the book, Lou and Nathan take Will to a tropical island called Mauritius, as part of their attempt to, A, get him well, because at that point he's suffered a bout of pneumonia, but also just to, you know, he used to be a big traveler, he used to be a big liver, and they want him to be reminded of of his old life in the best possible way. Um, and when I, basically, before I started writing this book, I I was a really nervous flyer. I found excuses not to get on a plane for the best part of a decade. I, you know, I was the person who held the plane up, sweating with the armrests, you know, the whole way through. And while I was writing it, I just started to feel kind of hypocritical because the message of the book was, you know, live well, make real good use of this precious life that you've been given. And so um, we blew a little family inheritance on a holiday to Mauritius. And it was a life-changing experience for me. Uh, I got there. My husband reminds me that I walked straight out of the taxi through the hotel and into the sea with all my clothes on because I was just so overwhelmed to be in this amazing place. And there were fish swimming up to you in the sea. And it was magical. And since then, I've got my scuba diving license, um, which also scared me, but in a good way. Um, I've been to America. I've been, I'm on a book tour now, which means I've seen more places in America than I could ever have hoped to, to have seen. And it has been the best 18 months of my life. And so in, in more ways than just good sales, this book has actually helped me too, if, if that doesn't sound too corny. No, it, well, it makes perfect sense. The book itself has a, uh, it feels so honest. And I, one of the things that makes this book move and works so well is your sense of dialogue. You write really great dialogue that sounds like things people would say, and family interactions. So the family dinner that and, and the wedding are two great examples of this. These are, it just felt like 
places I've been. And I'm wondering if you're an eavesdropper. And I'm a terrible eavesdropper. And <laughs> how funny that you should say that. I am. I am absolutely incorrigible. In fact, last letter, the book you mentioned at the beginning, was inspired by me eavesdropping on a group of women who were trying to decipher a text message. I was really conscious when I was writing the dialogue for this book that most commercial fiction books that I read don't reflect the way that people actually speak to each other. I mean, my husband and I, we've been together 16 years. When we talk to each other, sometimes we're quite rude to each other. Sometimes we take the mickey out of each other. Sometimes we joke. Sometimes we're sarky. Sometimes we're just grumpy. Um, And all those things can be encompassed within a loving relationship. Um, And I really wanted to get some of that directness into the dialogue, you know, the fact that if you like someone, if you love someone, it doesn't always come out as, you know, you are the light of my life. And, you know, (laughs) um, I don't think my husband has ever said that to me. But what he might do is say, you know, I pushed the wheelbarrow for you today. (laughs) It's just, you know, it comes out in different ways. Sorry, we live on a farm. Um, And uh, so I was really trying to just get that slightly irreverent way that even fairly intense lovers can speak to each other. You know, that's an interesting uh, observation because the movement of this book, the overall movement of the book, is powerful and beautiful and almost operatic if you just look at the plot and kind of what happens. Mm. But the anodyne to that is... uh, occurs in the dialogue and the way people talk to one another and also I think in Lou's voice this is the primary voice for this book and you really nail it from the very beginning and I'm wondering uh, about how you found that voice discovered that voice and how much writing that in that voice if that changed the way you saw things I think when you write a character, you almost have to have something of the actor about you. You have to really immerse yourself into that person's shoes. And it took me about a third of the book to work out who Lou was um, in terms of her voice. But when it came, it, it was unusually consistent. And and it was also pleasurable because, as you said earlier on, she, she grows within the book. She starts to develop resourcefulness, which she didn't know she had. She starts to develop a kind of self-examination that she hadn't thought about. She starts to actually look inward instead of just plodding through each day. So I suppose it, it wasn't a massively conscious thing because once I'd kind of inserted myself in her glittery shoes for the day, I just was able to, to be her. Does that sound terribly pretentious? No, no. I, I, it, it sounds uh, writing is method acting. Mm. I think for me, there is a lot of that. I mean, I, I know some writers who can literally turn it on and turn it off. They do their three hours a day and that's it. I can't do that. I'm, I'm one of these people who has to slightly live it. I wake up thinking about scenes. I go to bed thinking about scenes. My husband has a running joke that he can tell where I am in a book depending on how how much focus I give to the family throughout the year. You know, if it's June, the kids are not going to get fed occasionally because I'm just sort of drifting around thinking, this is what I need to do. So, yeah, I'm I'm just one of these people who, who has to live it while I'm writing it. Uh, this must have been a, a, a fairly uh, tough book to live. It's, it, it is in, uh, ultimately really powerful, and I'd like you to talk about, you know, 
I think making the decision to write what you did uh-huh. must have been as difficult for you as a writer as the decisions that the characters make. Yeah, I cried a lot while writing this book. I did. Uh, while I over the over the years, while I've been writing books, I've discovered that if I don't cry while I'm writing a big emotional scene, the reader won't cry. It it kind of has to be that. It's a really direct link, and I can I can check that through what people tell me. In fact, I cried so hard during the penultimate chapters of this book that the guy who shares, I, I work in a little office complex, the guy who works in the office next to me stopped by to see if I was okay. And I had to say, I'm fine, I'm just writing. <laughs> and I can see his look like, what kind of a job is this? But, you know, sometimes I make myself laugh, and I, I think that's probably really not something you're supposed to say. But there's a joke in there about Will coming out of a car as if, you know, he's skiing because Lou's put the ramp up wrong, which just made me laugh every time I reread it. That's a terrible thing to admit to, but, you know, you kind of have to feel it. It's the same thing. Well, humor is a really important part of this book, I think, and it's one of the things that, again, makes it so, so engaging. And you do a a fantastic job at bringing it in, but never overplaying it. And, again, I'm wondering for you, is that just... uh, a natural talent or did you have go back have to go back and kind of ratchet it back and say well maybe here it needs to go go back a little no bit. um thank you very much for saying that but it must be a natural talent because i didn't ha- i i think I, I i just knew how to gauge it i i just had quite a strong inner gauge as to uh, as to how far to push the humor and in fact i i'm a strong believer that comedic elements of the book actually amplified the more sentimental or emotional aspects of the book. There's a thing in English soap operas where quite often if one character is going to die in an episode, like in a terrible kind of sad death, there will be a party going on next door or something funny going on. And the two things actually amplify each other. And so I I guess I was calling on on that idea a little bit, which is it's almost sadder if if somebody's been laughing a bit beforehand. And in fact, you know, there's a climactic scene there where Lou makes some really bad jokes before what possibly is the most emotional scene in the book. Having finished this book, I think many readers are going to wonder what's next, where is it? You say you finished the next book. Can you tell us anything about it? Yeah, it's completely different. I do tend to do this. It's one of the reasons why my last publisher didn't quite know what to do with me. The next book is called The Girl You Left Behind. It's a huge kind of saga. It begins in occupied France in 1916. And it's about an artist's wife whose portrait painted by her husband, who's away at the front, becomes a kind of obsession of the German commandant who's taken over the town and it's when he when her husband is taken into custody in a prison of war camp she has to decide how far she's going to barter the portrait and possibly the subject of the portrait in order to win her husband his freedom and this has catastrophic consequences and then it's a story also set in the modern day of a young widow who owns the same painting 90 years on and it becomes the subject of a restitution claim and by looking at what happens to the portrait, we discover what happened to the artist's wife, Sophie. I've been speaking with Jojo Moyes. Her new book is Me Before You. Thank you for joining me, Jojo. Thank you so much.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.